Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. Thinking some storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news shortly, but in a rarity for the show, with our regular newsman Willem van Denderen and our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson both taking a break this week, Edge and I will steer the ship. So let's get stuck into what will be a busy show. Now the war in Ukraine continues unabated following the Russian invasion less than two weeks ago. And while the politics of the conflict have been debated far and wide, Inextricably linked has been the world game, with the country, which four years ago hosted the Champions League final, now forced to suspend its domestic league and have its upcoming World Cup qualifier against Scotland postponed. While football is inconsequential amid this kind of conflict, the game is the sporting heartbeat of this proud nation. So to discuss the role of football in this crisis, we'll be joined by Andrew Todos from Ukraine football Zoria Lodonsk. Of course, we'll be talking football on the pitch and preview the A-League Women's Finals this weekend and look at the latest with the Matildas and Socceroos, as we always do. And with Liverpool fresh from the League Cup victory and applying the blowtorch to Manchester City's defence of the Premier League, we'll be joined by James Pearce from The Athletic to get a sense of just how far he thinks the Reds can go as they remain alive for the title as well as the Champions League and the FA Cup. And as always, we'll bring it home with a special edition of Stoppage Time in Derek's absence a guest who we all know very, very well, our old mate, also from the Athletic, Rob Tanner. Edge, you and me this week, it's going to be a busy one, but uh, we're going to talk plenty of football. Before we do, though, uh, I think it would be remiss of us as sports fans to not acknowledge the passing of one of Australia's greatest ever sportsmen in any code, Shane Warne. And we're going to ask Rob Tanner a little bit about Warney at the very end, but uh, you met Warney uh, just socially on, on one occasion, uh, and uh, I've got a good story to tell. Uh, hi, Rob. Hi to listeners right around Australia. Yes, uh, we pride ourselves on covering all things football because that's our, our expertise. But, I mean, the news of Shane Warne's passing has struck all Australians, and in particular Victorians. Uh, in another, life, another lifetime, I spent some time working in the AFL at Geelong Football Club, and on one particular day, Geelong was playing St Kilda, and uh, in the week leading up to that, I was asked to organise uh, some seating and uh, stuff for Shane Warne because he was coming down with his family and some friends to watch the Saints and the Cats and um, as I did that um, he uh, requested that it uh, be kept on the down low so no one knew he was there so he could just have a nice afternoon at the at the AFL and uh, and obviously I met Shane through that experience and then on the Tuesday following the game he gave me a call just to thank him to thank me for organising all of that and uh uh, agreeing to his request to keep it on the down low and uh, he had a great, despite the fact that the, that the Saints got beaten, he had a wonderful day and we had a bit of a chat and I just was struck by how kind, generous and nice he was and thankful for what I did for him and uh, that stuck with me and I saw him another at a boardroom lunch about eight or nine years later and uh, he hadn't forgotten and he <laughs> knew I was and, and again he sort of reminded me and said thanks. So that was my experience with Shane, um, mm. very different to the public persona that was uh, bandied around at different times during his career but I think all of us um, are shocked because it was so unexpected and 52 years of age, I'm 51, mm. you're 54 I think Rob aren't you, so uh, it's right in our shooting zone and if you're a, 
a bloke who's had a good time in his life um, might be worth going down just to have a check up with a doctor. Yeah, I think if anything good comes of it, Edge, that's exactly what uh, we need to do. And and though you you, you say that uh, your experience was different to what was published throughout the course of his life, it seems consistent though with a lot of the private stories that we're hearing come out now. So so we'll look, we'll get back to the football. We will ask Rob Tanner for. The, the what he or the person he thinks is the equivalent um, English sports person in uh, in their uh, overall sporting landscape footballing person um, at the end of the show. But what do you think, Edge? Uh, have you no, got I don't. One no, I'm just saying. Or? But he he was very big in England, so yeah, it'll massive. be interesting to see yeah. just the response to that. But yeah. uh, as you know, I do a lot of travel with my work, and when when I'm travelling around the world, people often ask where you're from, mm-hmm. and uh, if I know the the person a little bit or I want to have a bit of fun, I say, well, we'll guess mm-hmm. and I'll give you a cue, a clue. Um, if I'm in anywhere in the in the subcontinent or um, in, uh, you know, Commonwealth countries, mm-hmm. you've only got to say Shane Warne. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, when I'm in North America, you say Steve Irwin and they always get mm-hmm. it. So, <laughs> so Warney is, uh, he was bigger than... Uh, Texas, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we'll talk a bit more about um, Warnie later on in the show. Uh, but look, let's get into the news. Uh, uh, well, this weekend, of course, is the uh, the Women's A-League final series. Uh, Edge, you're as a good, an expert, and we will talk about this uh, during uh, the the third segment of the show. But uh, on Friday night, the first match is the, uh, the, the Premiers, Sydney FC playing Melbourne City at uh, 7.05 kick-off at Netstrata Jubilee Stadium. And on Sunday afternoon, Adelaide United play the Melbourne victory in the knockout match. Um, in the, the A-League, though, there's been a, a couple of late changes. And I'm interested in your opinion on this one, that uh, in particular the Melbourne derby being postponed at late notice. Now, we know this is not uncommon in Europe. And, uh, you know, we often see fixtures emerge during the course of cup competitions across uh, um, the, the continent so lots of postponements and that sort of thing you know we're used to postponements in more recent times because of COVID but is this one between Victory and City a, a postponement that caught the AFC on the hop or not the AFC the APL on the hop for the AFC match um, in Japan do you think? Yeah, I think some of those fixtures around the Asian Champions League have been uh, a little bit flexible based on availability of, uh, of clubs around their own domestic leagues and changes in the COVID environment. So, look, I'm not, I'll am not. i give them a leave pass on that one. Mm. But uh, for A-League women's fans, we're finals time. We will talk about it in segment three. But obviously that first final, Sydney mm. FC versus Melbourne City, is the winner goes straight through to the grand final. The finals format's changed. And the loser will host mm. a preliminary final against the winner of the Adelaide and Melbourne City like Melbourne format. victory game. So um, it, it, is, it is old school top four for those people that uh, rugby league or mm-hmm. AFL, mm-hmm. Uh, VFL days. So it's old school top four. So there's a lot on that first mm-hmm. game. And it'll be interesting because there's been a lot of rain in Sydney. I'm expecting, obviously, the, the mm-hmm. uh, conditions to be pretty wet and soggy at uh, Cogra, I would think, on uh, Friday evening, just on the extent of the rain that's happened. So Mm. that might be a bit of a leveller. And Adelaide and Melbourne victory we'll talk about in segment three, but that's that's going to be... the original rivalry in the in the women's game. So looking forward to that. Absolutely. So on to other news. Football Australia board member Stefan Kamaz has stepped down, effective immediately citing personal reasons. Kamaz was inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 2014 following an administrative career that included time as a director of the Australian Soccer Federation, two stints as manager of the NSL and chief executive of Sydney FC. Kamaz's tenure on the board commenced in November 2021. So Edge, barely on the board, his seat's barely warm. It's 
seems a very odd time to leave so quickly. Yeah, surely there's a backstory that we're going to read about this in the fullness of time. Oh, I think in the fullness of time this will come out. I was very vocal at the time saying that I believe this was a regress, regressive step by the member associations who backed Stefan Kamaz onto the board uh, on the basis that um, he'd been there and done that and really couldn't offer anything new. I just think it was not a good decision um, and uh, we missed an opportunity to get someone of better calibre and quality. Uh, so we get that opportunity again, don't we? But obviously there'll be a backstory. You know, resigning for personal reasons, I'd say he's out of blue mm. or a disagreement with one or many people and um, I'm hearing stuff already but it's too early and I haven't had those discussions verified for me. Mm to say anything concrete about it. But I'd say where there's smoke, Rob, there's fire. Yes. And Stefan Kamaz on the way out of Football Australia. Sydney FC have stated former owner David Traktovenko is no longer involved in the club, meaning they are no not subject to Australian government sanctions on Russian financial systems and businesses. Russian banker Traktovenko became Sydney's majority owner in 2012 and controlled 88% of the club in 2015. However, the club now lies with his daughter Alina and son-in-law Scott Barlow. Barlow is also Sydney's CEO. A club statement this week said 98% of the club is owned by the Barlow family and the remaining 2% owned by the Chris Marley family and two Australian investors. So I guess it was inevitable that we would see some Australian connection to the decisions being taken around the world. Uh, what do you make of this, Edge? Well, David Traktovenko has been an incredible um, supporter of Australian football and he's obviously got connections to the wealth in Russia and he's extremely wealthy in his own right, otherwise he wouldn't own Sydney FC. So um, I'd say that there's been some planning in place to ensure that uh, his association with the club can't hinder the club in any way. Um, however, you know, just his involvement, his nationality, um, he has um, owns shares in a bank that... Uh, Putin owns. He's been on the record about that um, previously. So who knows how close the relationship or the money trail is there. But in this current climate, there'll be questions asked, no doubt. Yeah, definitely will be. Now, we're going to talk about this next story more with uh, Andrew Todos uh, from the Ukraine football website, Zoria Ladonsk, soon. But uh, as we all know, FIFA has granted Ukraine's request to have their World Cup qualifier against Scotland postponed, with June's Nations League international window looking the most likely alternative. The other match in the bracket between Wales and Austria will go ahead as planned on March 23, but the subsequent playoff final will also be delayed. Recent Ukraine squads have contained a strong contingent of home-based players, with 15 of the 23 selected in November applying their trade in the Ukraine Premier League. It, it, it seems inevitable that this was going to happen uh, and uh, and Scotland, uh, the Scotland FA fully supported it. Absolutely, and so they should because the, if there's 15 players that are currently in Ukraine, how are they going to get out, mm. um, even if it was to be played in a neutral venue? So I noted that FIFA had granted foreign players and coaches working in Russia the right to unilaterally suspend their contracts and leave the country until the end of the season. Uh, the ruling means foreigners will be considered out of contract from June 30 and be able to sign a contract elsewhere without consequence. World Players Union and FIFPRO praised the sentiment but called on the ruling too timid, stating that they want players and coaches to have the right to terminate contracts and seek other opportunities immediately. So this is a fast-moving and dynamic landscape as uh, organisations with an international context uh, catch up with uh, sanctions and relative rules that are affecting everybody and um, you know I'm looking forward to the discussion with Andrew from uh, the Ukrainian football uh, website so we'll 
we'll see what he's got to say about it. The story we've been covering for a while now in the United States, Cindy Parlocone has won re-election as president of the United States Soccer Federation, marginally defeating Carlos Cordero with 52.9% of the vote. The vote was tallied across members of the US Soccer's members, which includes national teams, leagues, youth senior amateur associations as well. While not all votes have been disclosed, it's in Open secret that Cordero received a significant portion of votes from state-based amateur associations, while Palacone has broader support at the professional level. From all the reading on this uh, story, it seems that this, uh, whilst are highly political as these votes inevitably are, each, uh, is the right decision? I think it's absolutely the right decision, and there's a lot of similarity between what happened to Heather Reid um, in the most recent uh, voting to have her ejected from the FA board and Cindy Palacone. So she's got been voted in by just a handful of votes. Heather Reid was voted out with just a handful of votes. There's some sim- similarity there, and there's big gender issues playing. But Deloitte, um, they had a big, um, they had a big say in this. Uh, in just days before the vote, they, who are a top five sponsor of US soccer, they didn't mince their words. They said, as we made clear in 2020, while our support for the team is unwavering, we were deeply offended by the views expressed by Cordello at the time. Um, the US Soccer Federation, uh, Cordola, we have appreciated the improved tone and trajectory of this matter under new leadership and our future sponsorship decisions will be contingent on continuity of that progress. Um, so that was a basically a, um, a, a pretty clear and definitive um, rebunction of uh, Cordello's uh, candidature for pre- president and it looks like um, Cindy Cohn, well, she's going to go around again and... Uh, We'll see her able to implement her her platform, which is going to be equal pay for the US women. Okay, this is a disturbing story that you first uh, floated on our on our uh, group chat uh, earlier in the week. Mexico's Liga MX has been suspended after crowd violence saw three people critically injured and a further 23 hospitalised during Saturday's match between Querétaro and Atlas. The match was suspended on 62 minutes when mass fighting broke out in the stands with security opening gates to the field so those not involved could escape. This led to rioting with benches destroyed and brawling players in the tunnel. All of the following day's matches were postponed with FIFA stating they join the Mexican Football Association and CONCACAF in condemning this barbaric incident. Do you know much more about the the context of this, Edge? You you know a lot about Central American football, South American football. Uh, uh, You know, we uh, hesitate to uh, to tar all supporters with the same brush, which you can't possibble do uh, we uh, I was listening to the the Guardian football weekly podcast on on the way into uh, record this uh, this week's show and uh, you know talk about the uh, which we'll discuss a little bit later on the the clowns who follow Chelsea that went to turf more that uh, that that uh, uh, sang Roman Abramovich's name whilst that there was a, a tribute to the, the Ukraine going on so there's there's idiots in in every group but these idiots in uh, the Mexican league uh, just seem to be uh, like fair income violent ultras that um, that in this case have just totally taken over the game. Well, it's the, the images were a throwback to the bad old days in South America and Europe uh, where we saw ultras get way out of hand in, in stadiums and organise, um, you know, pitched fighting uh, in and outside the stadium before and during and after matches. So I don't know the context around these two clubs and sets of fans and what happened, but it was extremely ugly. Mm. It's been a long time since we've seen images like that at a football mm. match. So uh, rightly so, the um, um, the Mexican Federation's uh, suspended uh, matches while they investigate um, and try and get a handle on this. Yeah, we talked about the in the French uh, 
League One, uh, the uh, the violence at the the Marseille Nice match um, only a few months ago. Yeah, um, but this so was a this, this is a, 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 a cranked up in terms of danger, dangerous behaviour. This mm, one was yeah, right an, up there. another level altogether. But yeah. but it's yeah a disturbing feature of football. Okay, before we go to the break, uh, a personal favourite story of mine. We did touch on this one last week, but Australian football has welcomed a tenth side into the national team's family with the Para Matildas becoming the Asia Pacific's first senior team for women and girls with cerebral palsy, acquired brain injuries and symptoms of stroke. The Paramatildas are Australia's first new national team in 22 years and will hold their first camp next month ahead of the May's World Cup in Spain, which we will follow closely. Kelly Sturton, a long-time contributor to the all-ability sporting space, will be the inaugural coach. She said it will be a dream come true to take a national side to a World Cup. And I talked to my little Alexander, who is 17 years old now, and he was very proud to hear that uh, that the uh, the inclusion story in Australian sport just just goes from strength to strength. So a great uh, a great news story there, Rich. Fantastic news story, and to everybody involved, a big 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 tick. And um, there was some really great PR and smiles, and I think this is a a great achievement by Football Australia. And um, we know everybody who listens to the show will know that we love. Pararoos, and now we love the Paramatildas. Absolutely, well said, Edge. All right, uh, stick around after the break. We are going to try and dig a little deeper into the way that football is intermingled into the entire crisis going on in Ukraine um, through uh, the fallout of the Russian invasion. Andrew Todos from the Ukraine football website Zoria Lodonsk has appeared on lots of different media around the world. He's going to join us on the show, so stick around. Andrew Todos after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, uh, as we said off the top of the show, uh, we talk football, we talk politics in football, but it's not often we talk war on box to box. But uh, sadly, the entire world has been consumed by the fallout of the Russian invasion of Ukraine less than two weeks ago. The politics of this conflict have been debated far and wide and inextricably linked in the world game, of course, who uh, only four years ago the Champions League final was played in Ukraine, can you believe it? Uh, And now uh, the country have had to have their World Cup qualifier against Scotland postponed and the domestic league suspended. A man who is uh, an expert on Ukraine football and has been an advocate Mm. for uh, Ukraine. He's uh, appeared on many media outlets around the world and he's been very generous to join us uh, is Andrew Todos, the uh, founder and editor of Zoria Lodonsk. Lodonsk. Uh, Andrew, how are you and, uh, and welcome to Box to Box. Hello, thanks for having me. So I guess the question off the top, uh, I've, I've listened to some of your interviews and some of the interviews which have been conducted in the last week and a half or so where it's such a moving story that some of the requests that people like yourselves have made have actually been fulfilled. So I, I ask the question again, has FIFA and UEFA done enough to support Ukraine in the current situation? I think if we analyse what's happened so far in terms of the fact that they've temporarily banned Russia from both of their organisations, uh, preventing them from playing matches both from their national teams and from their club sides, then yeah, I, I think that is a, a probably as good as you're going to get. In terms of what they can do further is, I was already listening to this rumour yesterday, no idea if it's true or not, it's unverified of course, but there's some sort of um, murmurs that potentially uh, Gianni Infantino is looking at seeing if Russia and Poland can play their World Cup playoff match in June. Um and evidently, 
if that was to happen, it's kind of like that's only three months away. <laughs> what exactly are you thinking is going to change in those three months, even if the war ended tomorrow? You is it really feasible to see Russia return to sort of world sport, world football just so quickly? Andrew, um, Ukraine performed exceptionally well at last year's Euros. Um, you have a, a match uh, postponed against Scotland, a World Cup qualifier, and there was uh, all sorts of um, potentials about when that could happen. But there must be, I think, 15 of the Ukrainian players are based in Ukraine at the moment, um, based on likely squad selection. A pure football question. I mean, the world, what an unbelievable show of solidarity for Ukraine um, should they make the World Cup I mean what are the prospects for Ukraine getting through the playoff route to make the World Cup based on the dislocation to what's happening at the moment I mean is there a is there a possibility that they can in the truest sporting context do it um, or is the dislocation so great it, it, it's going to be um, a Herculean task that might just be a bridge too far I guess we're going to have to look into the context of when this match will eventually be played. So it's not officially postponed yet at the time of when we're recording this, like officially, officially, mm. for whatever reason, the Ukrainian Association of Football still hasn't released a statement on it, neither has FIFA or anything like that. But BBC and other outlets are claiming that it is. So, you know, it's more or less good, good, as, um, good as gold that it will be postponed. Um, the rumours are that it will be played in June, so during like the Nations League window, and then maybe some other some of those matches will be reshuffled elsewhere. Um, I guess the main thing that we will have to look into is whether any of those players that are currently in Ukraine, those fifteen or so that you already mentioned, the ones that play for uh, Dynamo Kiev and Shakhtar Donetsk, primarily, what sort of game time they're going to have between now and then, because. It's worth noting that... And the ability to train, and the ability to live yeah, their lives, exactly. and get appropriate exactly. food and you name it. Yeah, yeah. so we will have to wait and see regarding that one. I think uh, yesterday UEFA and FIFA have allowed the possibility of like players that play in the Ukrainian Premier League to find temporary clubs elsewhere until the end of the season at least, so they can like go on loan somewhere or something like that. However, I don't think that's really applicable to the Ukrainian players because of the law which bans 18 to 60 year olds from leaving. I think you can have um, an exemption, so if you've got like three kids or something, you're able to leave the country. So for example, I think uh, one of Ukraine's key players, Taras Stepanenko, who plays for Shakhtar, uh, said the defensive mid, he's in um, Romania at the moment. Whether he'll be able to find some form or something like that is a different story. And then evidently, I think the main thing is actually will the sort of the training staff and even like the equipment um, of the kits and all that kind of thing, will that be able to get out of Ukraine because of obviously there's no flights or anything like that. So I think all of these things have to be taken into account and yeah it's going to be an uphill task for sure whenever this game gets played in the end if it's June if it's whenever if it's not played but I think once once the match actually does happen regardless of sort of match fitness and all this kind of thing um, even though it might be a bit of a Herculean effort as you mentioned I feel that the players will probably take it upon themselves by June it'll probably just be normality war even if it's still on sadly 
Uh, so I think maybe mentally they might be a bit more prepared than they are right now, which emotionally we've seen in like the Premier League, for example, Zinchenko, Mikolenko. Uh, we've not seen Yerobolenko yet, but he's apparently taken this very, very sort of badly in terms of um, mentally, I think, as um, David Moyes has mentioned. So hopefully by June or whenever, these players will probably be in a better mental state and can sort of play for pride and passion and sort of um, that patriotism that I think we're seeing in a lot of Ukrainian footballers that prior to when this war began to escalate, what, 12, however many days ago, um, the majority of Ukrainian footballers in the national team were rather sort of apolitical, didn't really get involved in stuff. And now they're very much um, some of the shining bastions in, the, in that field. Andrew, I just want to take you to a, a road trip you did before the invasion. Uh, I was listening to uh, an interview that you did with Sky Sports in the UK where you talked about um, travelling around the country to see firsthand, like literally the perimeter of, of what is physically the largest country by, by uh, area in, in Europe. Um, explain some of the stories that, that you've seen firsthand to give the people listening to, to this podcast a perspective of, of just how important the, uh, uh, the international solidarity is for the people of Ukraine and football's place in that. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, did a road trip around Ukraine last summer. It was to celebrate 30 years of independence. Um, me and a couple of my podcast co-hosts, we wanted to see how Ukrainian football has developed since uh, Ukraine achieved independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, we visited every single stadium, every single um, club, met with someone from a club, be it a fan, be it someone that works at the club, a director, some, we met some club presidents. It was it was a crazy trip. It was very sort of intense in terms of we tried to do it in like two and a half weeks. So we didn't have much time in every place, but sort of we got off we got a little flavour of every of every sort of corner of Ukraine as well. So it is surreal right now seeing places like Mariupol, which was near the old front line where the war in the Donbass was going on, um, Kherson, which is currently being occupied by Russian soldiers, um, Kharkiv, which has been more or less bombed bombed to the ground, um, which was like one of which is like Ukraine's second city, great university city and um, full of life, full of youth and energy. Um, so when you compare it to see, when you see like all these acts of solidarity, especially in sport, um, I think that Ukrainians understand that sport, you know, can't do much more than it's doing really, you know, other than financial support or something like that. They're not going to be able to provide weapons or fighter jets or anything like that. So I think it sort of spurs them on that the world is with Ukraine in some capacity, one way or another, be it symbolic, be it uh, financially or however. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, it helps them that, that they're very much on the right side of this and hopefully it will help them on the way to, to like win this when, when the time comes. What's it been like for you? I can only um, assume it's been a roller coaster of emotions and you must feel like your life has been turned upside down and you must have um, unbelievable um, emotions about your friends in Ukraine. Yeah, so evidently I'm one of the lucky ones living in London. 
but as I mentioned, did that road trip last year, spent more or less six months in Ukraine uh, last year. So very much have got close connections there. Yeah, it's been difficult. The main thing is it's still, um, it probably still hasn't fully computed with me because I'm trying to avoid that. Like on Twitter and all this stuff, I like to report all the, I'm reporting all the atrocities and everything that's going on. So my Zoe Londonsk account has gone from just solely about football and more now, but still do a lot of football, sport and all that kind of thing, but also sharing with everyone what's going on in Ukraine, you know, what are the facts on the ground. And yeah, it's been tough for sure. The main thing is it's just surreal, really, um, to, to look at these places on the TV screen, uh, places that I've visited, places that I've seen, friends that I know over there, and them telling me what's going on, you know, when I ask, check in for updates from them. Yeah, I feel it's like a, it's like a weird dream, really, like a nightmare, and yeah, it's, it's been tough, but, you know, especially as being in London and stuff, I just got, you just got to stay strong, um, and keep going with what you can from abroad, really, you can't directly help in the war effort in terms of picking up a gun or anything like that for the time being anyway. Uh, so just helping the best that I can through, uh, the media sphere, uh, through volunteering down at the local Ukrainian social club with, um, donations and all that kind of thing. And yeah, um, see how that goes over the coming weeks, months, or however long this will carry on for. All of us have, um, Emotion. Uh, all all of us have connections to our childhood and our the places that we've grown up, the places, the football stadiums we went to, the restaurants we've eaten, and so forth. So to see um, places that you know well just levelled. Um, that follow up to the last question. Despite the solidarity and the um, incredible narrative that's sort of generated around the impressive an amazing um, defence that Ukraine are providing for themselves. Um, does the destruction of the cities get so great that at some point there there has to be some sort of compromise in in that just to stop the fighting? Is that a um, is that a likely scenario that might eventuate, or is this going to play out to the bitter end? I think that it might play out to the bitter end because everyone's got to know uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. I don't think he's really going to be ready to to come up with some sort of concessions to Russia and Russia, I think over the past few days uh, in when there's been talks between Ukraine, want some sort of concessions that really don't benefit anyone other than Russia themselves. So, um as long as territorial integrity and all that is not is not returned, I don't think Ukraine will be will be listening to anyone. Um, it might be a waiting game to wait out until Putin uh, bites the dust. But if that is the case, Ukraine Ukraine survived the Soviet Union. Ukraine survived the Russian Empire. Um, I'm sure we can survive this one as well. Andrew, um, 
it, it's really uh, prophetic words. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, we, you, you step back and you and you look at this moment in history that we're living through, and we contrast it with other events over the the, the centuries and the millennia. Um, we we just uh, are speculating on on how this will play out, and uh, and we know that when uh, invasions of this nature occur. Um, to think um, that uh, there will be peace in our time, to quote the famous words of Neville Chamberlain all those years ago, um, is naive at best and uh, and not um, to the benefit of the people that you uh, are representing at worst. So, Andrew, look, we know you're a wonderful advocate for Ukraine and uh, you're speaking as much as you possibly can. Um, we wish you all the best and uh, we'll be following closely and uh, and certainly if uh, the opportunity presents itself um, to have a conversation again, hopefully um, for a better story, maybe even a positive footballing story. Uh, and they qualify for the World Cup, right? Oh, wouldn't that be? Will you come back on if, uh, if that happens? <laughs> it would be uh, huge. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, what a story that would be. But uh, yeah, mate, thank you. Thank you. We wish you well. Um, stay well and uh, um, thanks again for your time. Cheers. Andrew Todos from the Ukrainian football website, Zoria Londonsk. Uh, jump on to his Twitter account. Follow uh, Andrew. You'll find it at Andrew, uh, spelt as you'd expect it to, Todos, T-O-D-O-S, at Andrew Todos uh, on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, stick around. After the break on Box to Box, we're going to talk Socceroos Matildas and the A-League Women's Finals. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most yeah, this is box to box. What a sobering conversation that was with Andrew Todos. We talk football on the park mostly. We talk politics in football, but we don't often talk uh, about wars on this uh, show. So uh, it does really bring it all home to you what uh, fortunate people we are to live in a country like Australia. We're going to talk Matildas and Socceroos. We're going to talk the A League Women's Finals coming up. But before we do, we're going to talk Chemist Warehouse. Are you ready to do your part to help slow the spread of influenza? Edge you. Absolutely, yeah. I get the I get the flu vaccine every single year in March. It's a smart move. And like you do, Edge, and I do as well, it's time to book your flu immunisation at Chemist Warehouse. Immunisation is a safe and effective way to help protect you from the flu. By getting immunised, you also help to protect those too ill or too young to be vaccinated. So that's a really important element to consider. When you get your own vaccination, it's not just you that you're looking after, it's the people in your family, in your community, the people that are unable to get out there. You're helping them as well by stopping the spread of flu. After all, it takes a community to build immunity. To book your quadrivalent strain vaccine today for $17.99, go to chemistwarehouse.com.au slash flu. You don't need a script edge. The prescription and administration are provided in store by a qualified health professional. How easy is that? Very easy, Rob. Just get in there, get it done. That website for bookings, chemistwarehouse.com.au slash flu. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day. Now, Michael... Hang um, on, Rob, you're a bad man, so you would appreciate the... um, class of some perfect copywriting oh yes it takes a community to secure immunity exactly whoever did that it's a little bit of gold hats off to them hats <laughs> off to them oh, we love a bit of we love a bit of great uh, writing in an ad our very good friends at nine uh, the powered studios the talk radio so whoever did uh, that well, good on you well okay. done
hats off to them. Edge, as Willem always does, though, segueing from one uh, uh, piece of uh, very important commercial information on the show to another. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army, of course, with a jam-packed two years coming up for both our national sides. There is no better time. We're getting back on the bike, Rob. We're getting you are back on the go? bike, brother. Well, you've got to join the Green and Gold Army today. Get it can be done in two seconds. Sign up to the mailing list at ggatravel.com. That is ggatravel.com and take the first step towards getting back into the world while cheering on the green and gold. So it doesn't mean you have to put your money down or no, commit to a date. Sign up, and, sign up and then you'll get the information on the tours when they're launched very soon. That's what we're talking about. The in first and around step. the Japan match. Okay, so make sure you do that. All right, we're going to talk about the uh, A-League women's finals shortly. Before we do that, we're going to round up all the news on the uh, Matildas and Socceroos and First up, Hayley Rasso and Alana Kennedy have lifted silverware with Manchester City this week, winning the Women's League Cup final against Chelsea 3-1. Sam Kerr opened the scoring for Chelsea in the first half in front of 8,000 at Wimbledon's Plough Lane, but City hit back with three second-half goals. While Chelsea played the Cup final, Arsenal opened up an eight-point gap atop the league, although the Blues have three games in hand. Steph Catley, and we'll listen to this commentary piece, it was a beautiful little nutmeg by Steph Catley to score. She managed two assists in their 4-2 win over Birmingham with Caitlin Ford netting their final goal. Valti, excellent ball from an excellent player today. And here's Caitlin Ford to wrap it up, and she does. Think she may even have nutmeg Marie Hurahan to seal it. And Arsenal have the two-goal buffer. Steph Catley is in rare form, absolutely rare form. She has been killing it for mm. for uh, Arsenal, and she's in great form. I'll tell you what, who else is in great form? We know that this is Samantha Kerr, and she's just got an, another award to her name. Um, mm. She's been honoured at the London Football Awards as the Women's Super League Player of the Year. The London Football Awards is only eligible to clubs and players based in London, but there's quite a few there. So she ranked, racked up that award uh, without too many troubles. So she's just, yeah, with the trophy cabinet be? What would she do with them all? Well, First of all, she would need some uh, excess baggage on the plane, wouldn't she? She might have to talk to Tommy Rogic, one of Australia's most prolific uh, silverware winners with Celtic. He's got about, uh, how many trophies did we count, uh, Tom? 23 or something, something yeah. like that. Joe Montemuro's Juventus remain top of the table with 13 wins from their 16 matches while Ivy Lewick and Ella Mastro-Antonio continue to graft away with mid-table Pomigliano who this week had a 1-0 win over Inter. So Edge, whilst we talk about our women players in the Women's Super League in the UK, uh, there's a strong representation and Muro just keeps on adding to his CV as a manager. So, you know, Tony Gustafsson, uh, he's, uh, he's got someone hot on his heels who could easily be the bloke in charge right now. Yeah, he's definitely a uh, number one candidate for the next uh, head honcho of Matildas whenever that uh, timeline eventuates. Having said that, while we're talking Italy, I want to talk about Alessandro Sacchetti. He's only 18 years of age and it was the biggest challenge possible for the Perth-born defender. He was thrown in the deep end in Italian football last weekend. Um, he uh, took to his club's uh, defence in Serie B flawlessly um, and his side had a 4-0 win over Spal and believe it or not, who was the goalkeeper he was standing in front of at his club? That's why I didn't talk about his club because in goal is no other than a legendary Buffon. Gianluigi Buffon, Palmer. Yeah, he had Palmer. Yes. So he yes, played uh, in the centre of defence for Palmer yes. in a 4 0 win over Spile in Serie B. Yeah. What a great way to uh, play your oh, first match of yeah, senior football. Legend. So, Alessandro Socati, you've just. Uh, you've just 
put yourselves in the uh, shop window. And I would have loved to have known what the conversation with the big Buffon would have been before the game as they walked out onto the ground. Absolutely. The great Gigi. All right, well, great way to start the conversation around the men's football. Uh, as we continue, Jackson Irvine, last time we talked about Jackson and St Pauli, they were on top of the ladder, but they've slipped to third in the Bundesliga too, despite a 3-1 win on the weekend. If this was to remain the case when the season concludes in nine matches time, they'd play a two-legged tie against Bundes- the Bundesliga's 16th side for promotion. So we'll watch out for that one and see if we can get Jackson on uh, soon to have a chat. Another week, another step in the right direction for Joel King, who played through a nice ball for OB's first goal in their two-all draw with Lawrence Thomas Sondiusk to Scotland. Bad news for Cameron Devlin and Nathaniel Atkinson, who both went off injured during Hart's draw with Dundee. Celtic remain top of the Scottish Premiership after a 3-1 win over Livingston, and this week head to Dundee for their quarterfinal of the Scottish Cup edge. Uh, they uh, they keep on you know putting out uh, the consistent results. They do. Ange Postecoglou's boys doing well, but it would I, I just see Danielle Irvine sitting at home mm-hmm. saying, "You didn't mention my boy's 29th birthday. Oh, he turned 29 during the week, Jackson." So, to the Irvine family, uh, no doubt there was a few um, Zoom calls or Facebook FaceTime or whatever you call it. They would have been getting on the to each other and uh, mm-hmm. wishing everyone a happy birthday. But Jackson's um, performing pretty well in that. Uh, Number six position at St Pauli, he just plays week after week. Yeah, he does. Happy birthday, Jackson. Uh, around the globe, there were goals for Nikita Rukovitso scored a brace in Israel. Anthony Kalik, who scored Gorica's fourth in a big win in Croatia. And Martin Boyle, who tapped in the game's only goal for Al Faisali in Saudi Arabia. And finally, Kevin Muscat's Yokohama F. Marinos have moved top of the J-League after two wins against Vissel Kobe. Talk about burying the lead. And Shimizu this week, along with Kawasaki, they've played more games than anyone else. So games in hand, of course given they will soon be competing in the Asian Champions League. It's, uh, that is just a great result for uh, for old Muskie. And I must say to the Keep Up website, who's coming out with some great content, uh, they had a little story about Matt Ross, Australian coaching quiet achiever. Coaching careers are difficult, even at the best of times. Throwing the fact that you're an unproven Australian without any real meaningful playing experience looking to make it overseas, and it's an uphill battle, and it makes this story even more remarkable. Matt Ross and his wife, both teachers, risked it all, uh, but that didn't matter. Uh, the, the former linesman turned teacher, turned bus driver, turned football coach. He's gone on to celebrate Champions League glory, coaching in Germany and Sweden, while helping South Korea conquer his native Australia at the Women's Asian Cup. Um, we just might dip our lid to Matt Ross and uh, anybody interested in a fantastic uh, grassroots football story to the elite level of the game, um, just jump on the Keep Up website and check out who Matt Ross is and his uh, journey in the game. And uh, now he's at the top uh, echelon of women's football, um, plying his trade in a full-time capacity. Excellent. Well uh, well said there, Edge. And uh, um, we, um, before we go, we are, of course, going to do a, a preview of the, the Women's A-League finals, which are this weekend. So as we said off the top of the show, it's the old-school top four. So 1v2, winner goes to the grand final. The loser plays the winner of 3v4, which is Adelaide versus Melbourne Victory. So these games on Friday night uh, in Sydney at uh, Cogra Oval Jubilee Stadium, uh, Sydney FC, Melbourne City. Edge, uh, these two uh, battled it out for most of the season to win the Premier's Plate. Uh, Sydney FC got it in the end. Um, do you see this one going with form? What's your uh, what's your judgment call? Oh, Sydney FC, definitely the best team in the competition. They did lose to Melbourne City a few weeks ago, but they did at a time when they were playing a lot of games and were a little bit fatigued. But Sydney FC, for me, uh, are absolutely killing it. And uh, they're going to go into that hot favourites. Um, they've got some players in form. Rachel Lowe, 
Yada Wyman, Nat Tobin, Ellie Green, um, as well as Charlie Rule, not to mention their strikers, Courtney Vine and Remy Seamson. They do have the the you know, the Blue Ribbon squad. Um, they'll be hard mm. to beat. But don't uh, write off Melbourne City. Mm. Melissa Barbieri, the fittest and uh, best season she's had in a long, long time. Uh, Emma Checker might not be in the frame with the Matildas, but still an extremely good professional footballer and a, and a great leader at that club. Uh, and they've got some uh, fantastic uh, the Kiwis that they've got in there, Rebecca Stott and Hannah Wilkinson. Uh, they can do some damage. If they can actually constrain Sydney, put a bit of pressure, they've got the capacity to get them on the break. And I think weather conditions might be a bit of a level in that game. I'm expecting mm. um, I'm expecting the, the, the pitch to be a little bit wet. We know there's just been a massive amount of rain in Sydney and uh, the pitches will be impacted at some point. Sunday afternoon at Cooper Stadium, Adelaide United hosts Melbourne Victory. So Melbourne Victory got into this uh, fourth spot on goal difference alone against Perth. They uh, they stumbled late in the season and seemed to, to lose their way, but they held on uh, to get into the finals. Uh, do you give them a chance against Adelaide at home? Well, a little over a week ago, they were absolutely belted by mm. Adelaide in Adelaide. But Melbourne Victory had had twenty. Uh, seven games in 23 days. So they were really fatigued and uh, battling with some injuries. Um, Melbourne Victory get back Molina Rez and Claudia Bunge, who uh, were big uh, contributors to last weekend's match. There'll be a different team uh, that comes out to, uh, to play Adelaide, but Adelaide's had a much better season uh, consistently through the year. I think they're running on top of the ground. I think they're healthier uh, in the context of uh, their best players uh, being in, in good shape. They will be firm favourites. But, you know, Melbourne Victory, they've got some real quality in that team. Um, Kyra Cooney-Cross, uh, Alex Chidiak, uh, Melina Ayres, um, as well as um, Casey Namont having a good season in goal and the goalkeepers are important. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if Melbourne Victory could sneak a win there over Adelaide, but uh, they won't go in as favourites. Okay, all right. Well, uh, if you've got 10 Paramount Plus, make sure you uh, watch that one live this weekend. If you're in Sydney or Adelaide, get along to the game and support uh, the A-League's women's finals and we'll cover the uh, the finals as they go on throughout the course of the next couple of weeks. Okay, stick around. Uh, well, the Cats away, the most do play. Edge is here still, but Derek's gone and Willem's not here, so I just took it upon myself to organise James Pearce from The Athletic. Our good friend Rob Tanner, who will join us later in the show, has been very generous in introducing various of his colleagues from The Athletic, and uh, I just want to see from uh, the uh, Merseyside point of view, the man on the beat, whether he thinks that uh, the uh, the Liverpool uh, uh, juggernaut can can actually run down Manchester City and, uh, and win the entire title, and maybe even go all the way, Edge, to win the quadruple because they're still alive, aren't they? You, 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 that sort of uh, <laughs> look on your face. Well, the, the that... look on my face is Willem's <laughs> having a week off and uh, you've had a, a large input into the running sheet and we just happened to slip in James Pierce, the that. Liverpool uh, man from The Athletic, just to have a nice little loving talk about how Liverpool is well, going you, you to get sit, over that line. You go and take a break. Sit on the couch and <laughs> James will have All right, stick around. James Pierce next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yeah, this is Box to Box, and anyone who listens to this show knows that ever since I had the opportunity to visit uh, the mecca of football, Anfield, in 2018, I take every opportunity I can to talk about the great Reds, and this is just one of them. Our Good friend Rob Tanner from The Athletic introduced us to many uh, of his colleagues and one of them is James Pearce who joins us now. How are you, James? All good here in Liverpool. 12 
12 straight wins, we're, we're flying. We're watching parallel clubs who are, they appear to be of equal power, uh, Liverpool and Manchester City, Jurgen Klopp and, uh, and Pep Guardiola, two of the greatest managers of the modern era. Uh, they've won the, uh, the Premier League each in the last couple of years. Uh, Liverpool just got pipped by one point a couple of years ago. Are you seeing a similar situation play out here? Uh, what, what, what do you feel uh, we're going to see in, uh, ahead of uh, when those two teams go head-to-head to pretty much decide the title race in, in a month or so? Yeah, well, I think it is shaping up to be a, an absolutely momentous day at the Etihad in in early April when the they, when they go head to head because I don't I don't really see either team slipping up if you know dropping hardly any if any at all points wise between now and then and um, yeah it was interesting listening to Jurgen Klopp this week talk about how you know he's convinced these two great teams really spur each other on to even greater heights and he was talking about you know. There's no chance City get the kind of points totals they've had in the last few years without Liverpool breathing down their necks and, and vice versa. Because, um, yeah, I remember the days when, you know, 80, 85 points would win you the Premier League title. And and now suddenly, you know, we've, we've, we've seen, you know, a, a higher echelons of the 90s and, 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 and clock at 100, which, you know, just shows how ridiculously high the bar is. Is set and um, yeah, by far and away the the two best teams in English football, and you know it might not just be might not just be the Premier League that they're battling for between now and the end of the season with um, you know the both still in the FA Cup and the Champions League as well. Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola cast massive shadows over their clubs, and you wrote um, on Monday a fantastic article about. Is Liverpool getting good at succession planning? Effectively looking beyond. The Klopp reign, uh, the summer of 2023 is not far away and um, therefore by that stage, nine years as coach of Liverpool, he's promised his family that he'll, uh, at 57 years of age, uh, devote time to them after that. I mean, what is what is the succession planning and what is the talk about what comes for Liverpool after Jurgen Klopp? You know, I, I think it goes without saying that you can only do so much to prepare for such a momentous moment as as trying to fill the void when Klopp does decide to go. I mean, at the minute, yeah, his contract runs to the summer of 2024. Um, the ideal scenario would be that he does stick around for a few few more years beyond that. Although, you know, the people I've spoken to at Liverpool, as things stand at the minute, they they're not expecting his stance to change. You know, he's been he's been quite clear up to this point that, that no, you know. Of course, I'll respect the contract, but I will take a break from football then. Um, so, yeah, all you can do is is try and ensure the foundations are really solid for the next man who comes in, whether that is Steven Gerrard, whether that's Pep Linders, or whether someone else, you know, emerges as a as a serious contender in the next few years. And when we when we have seen kind of this squad evolve, you know, it doesn't seem like too long ago that there's a lot of talk about kind of is is this an aging squad? You know, are they gonna need to do a lot of kind of surgery on it around the same time? And then suddenly now you you know you watch Ibrahima Kanate, you know, and you think, wow, you know, twenty two years of age, you know, he could be a Liverpool centre back for the next ten years. You know, you look at Joe Gomez is still only twenty four, you look at the midfield, you've got Harvey Elliott, you've got Curtis Jones to really talented young English players. And then, you know, that that well-established front three that, that served Liverpool so well for so long, you know, that's that's evolving now as well with Diaz and Jota coming in and both only 25. 
And then, and then you look at Liverpool off the pitch. I think you know financially they're on a much firmer footing now uh, than what, certainly when Klopp came in. You know, in terms of the infrastructure, you look at you know the um, you know the, the, the whoever comes after Klopp will inherit you know much better training facilities than Klopp had when he started with that switch from you know, Melwood. Now they're at Kirby. You look at Anfield as a stadium. You know the Anfield Road redevelopment. You know is is going to boost capacity to sixty one thousand. You know that will be completed in just over 12 months time and, and and I think also you look at you know in key positions off the pitch you know the CEO Billy Hogan he was a guy that had, had worked at the club for a long time and was was almost for a job similarly with Julian Ward taking over as sporting director from from Michael Edwards this summer so I think all of that kind of does just suggest that you know Pep Linders if, if you're looking for continuity which is is which is what Liverpool have gone for in, in certainly other areas of the club, then I think Pep Linders ticks a lot of those boxes in terms of, you, you know, the style won't change. You know, you know, the brand of football and, and, and the way in which Liverpool go about their business won't change because he is integral to what they do at, under Klopp at the moment. You make the very good point in your article that, you know, um, there's almost a blueprint for what not to do. And that's what Manchester United did mm-hmm. after uh, Sir Alex Ferguson departed in that aura and um, um, hold over the club, that shadow over the club dissipated, but they've really been in a state of flux since. So um, Liverpool will need to be thinking about it because he's going to be a massive figure to replace. And for me, I mean, I'm nowhere near it, closer to it. I'm not a Liverpool fan like you, Rob, but it's just set up for Steven Gerrard to waltz back in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's destiny, isn't it, that Steven Gerrard will manage Liverpool at some point. I think at the minute it's just... Probably a case of is he the next man or is he the man after the next man? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and then you could you could almost argue that you'd be better off being the man after the next man yeah. rather than trying to trying to trying to live up to to the you know the ridiculous achievements and and that the Klopp has overseen during his reign. So um, yeah, I think you know clearly with Gerard, there's a massive emotional pull there because of of what the club means to him and what he means to everyone at the club because he you know aside from the fact that for me that you know it, during my lifetime he's been the greatest Liverpool player I've ever had the honour of watching um he also showed you know amazing loyalty to the club during some tough times when he could easily have gone elsewhere to fuel both his medal collection and his bank balance so um yeah I think you know with, with Gerard, I think still a lot hinges on you know the next couple of years how does he do with Villa, I think that was the perfect next step for him after his achievements at Rangers. Um, but I think, you know, within the next couple of years, you'd want to see him getting Villa up towards that top six and seven in the Premier League, especially with the financial backing. I think he's going to continue to get there and, and, and get them into Europe. And he was if he was to do that, then you'd say he's probably done everything he possibly could to to put himself in a in a strong position to to get the job in if if, you know, as be, as things stand at the minute. It does come up in 2024. I know uh, this might be stretching a long bow. Uh, uh, the potential for the uh, the post uh, Klopp era to create uh, a Paisley Shankly kind of handover would uh, would be delicious, wouldn't it? For uh, for anyone who uh, follows uh, the red part of, of Liverpool, of course, mate. But uh, you talk about the strike force and those uh, uh, attacking weapons that Liverpool have created in the new uh, uh, era of, uh, of of weapons that are coming through. But uh, the the two key players for mine. That, that really changed everything for Liverpool and turned them into Premiership winners and Champions League winners were uh, after uh, the disaster of Loris Karius when Alisson arrived.
arrived and then of course the signing of Virgil van Dijk and his absence last season uh, uh, proved just how important he is to the team so so whilst uh, it's uh, obviously key in any football team to have um, the cutting edge up front that those two players in particular have been critical to the success of Liverpool in uh, in recent years yeah I, I think the two most transformative signings certainly in the Premier League era for Liverpool in terms of when you look at where they were at before those players came in and and where they've been at since I think you know I'd, I'd probably put Van Dijk in in that kind of absolute top spot because of you know Liverpool was looked so vulnerable defensively um you know they were crying out for for a, you know a real talismanic center half that they hadn't really had since since Jamie Carragher retired in mm. in 2013 and um you know for a lot you know it was it was supposed to be Dayan Lovren that never really that never really panned out and you know it was you know, you, you, you go right back to that kind of when Liverpool should have won the title and came so close to winning it under Brendan Rodgers. You know, it was that was the Achilles heel. You know, they conceded far too many goals. And um, and that continued into the Klopp era until, you know, they stuck to their guns after, after you know, they missed out on Van Dijk in the summer. You know, there's a, you know, absolute, you know, so much noise amongst the, the fans, especially on online, kind of demanding that they moved on to a plan B. But Klopp, was adamant. No, no, no. We'll wait till the January. We'll, we'll get the one we really want, which is which is Van Dyke. And um, yeah, I mean, I remember at the time when they signed Van Dyke, Klopp was very much kind of, please ignore the price tag. And you think, well, <laughs> that, that's, that's easier said than done when you've just paid a world record fee for a defender, seventy five million pounds. But you know, the biggest compliment you could pay Van Dyke is probably within two three months. I don't think anyone even mentioned the price tag anymore because mm-hmm. everyone could see. It is transformative impact, and he mm. was worth absolutely every penny. And um, yeah, that was an extraordinary stat last weekend that he now holds the Premier League record for. I think it's sixty home yeah. league games for Liverpool now without defeat. Never and, lost at Anfield. Yeah, which is is just absolutely bonkers when you think, you know, he was he been a Liverpool player now for for over four years, mm. and 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 obviously he had that long absence last season. But um, you know, I think when anyone suffers a, a you know a, a ruptured crucial ligament you always have that nagging fear will they get back to where they were before but he's I'd say probably since January onwards this season he's he's well and truly dispelled those fears and um yeah and obviously behind him when you've got someone like Alison Becker who you know he's just he's, he's just someone who's like Van Dyke just spreads confidence and calmness and is so commanding that you know he I think he 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 instills belief in everyone around him, and, and as a result, makes them better. So, um, mm. yeah, to go from Carriers to Allison, I don't think it gets much of a much of a bigger leap. Than, and than and that. pressure being put on him by Quiven Kelleher, who uh, is uh, a, um, a rising star in his own right. I'm sure that's played a big part in Allison's outstanding form this season as well. Because you know, even even when you're the best in the business, like he is, you you still need to be pushed on a daily basis and have that feeling that. You've really, really got to scrap and fight to 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 retain your place, and I think you know that Liverpool are in a great position at the minute with the goalkeepers because um, you know Kelleher's development has been been extraordinary really over the last twelve to eighteen months, and you know Klopp himself has held his hands up and said you know that's that's down to John Achterberg, the goalkeeping coach who's been at the club for over a decade now, and you know he was he was one who kept on championing Kelleher's. Uh, cause you know at a time when probably you know he, he, for me he always looked previously like he, I, I doubted whether he was 
he had the physicality to 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 really to really kind of succeed at the highest level. But um, you know, he's he's really improved on that front. And again, like you know, similar to Allison, and probably it rubs off on him from working with him on a daily basis. But he's got this lovely calmness to him, um, which which is in stark contrast to to what was what came before for Liverpool. So. Um, yeah, with Allison as the number one and Kelleher waiting in the wing, wings, ready to step in. I mean, I, I can't think Liverpool have ever been in a better position goalkeeper-wise. Excellent, James. And that is just what I like to hear. I know Michael sitting there grumpy in all of his Arsenal glory, um, wondering just when they're going to get back to their former glory whilst uh, Liverpool go from strength to strength, mate. So, James, thank you for joining us, mate. I know it's a little bit indulgent, but I'm not the only Liverpool supporter in Australia who, uh, who wants that to happen. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, mate, thanks so much for joining us, James, and enjoy that Champions League game. Uh, as For those uh, listeners who have probably worked it out already as we talk to you, it's prior to that match against Inter uh, on uh, on Wednesday morning. We're doing the show a little earlier this week than we normally would. So, uh, uh, so mate, we'll talk to you down the track, uh, hopefully when, uh, when there's more good news to tell. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, take care, guys. Good chatting to you. Thanks, James. James Pearce from The Athletic. All right, stick around from one athletic man to another. Rob Tanner, stoppage time next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real ends and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most this is box to box. This is stoppage time. The fourth official has given us plenty of time to bring this ship home. And normally, uh, we uh, we steer hand it over to to Derek to uh, to sort of direct the stoppage time discussion because there's always lots of stuff uh, in the world of football in the previous week that we don't get to, and we try to spend some time just going through it. But uh, Derek's having a break, and what better man to come? Coming off the bench as the super sub of Box to Box. He's been with us since 2015 when he was with the Leicester Mercury. And every single one of those voices, in cha- including James Pierce, who you heard before the break, they wouldn't have been on this show if it, if it wasn't for our good friend Rob Tanner from The Athletic. How are you, Rob? I'm good, thank you very much. Is this Derek's Fergie time, so to speak, is it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is, mate. It, it, it sure is. We, uh, um, it's sort of, um, since we've just become exclusively a podcast, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of uh, uh, taken on a life of its own. So we, uh, we, we tend to just go for as long as we can until we run out of, uh, of football to tell, mate. So I hope you've got plenty of time. Oh, I've got plenty of time, mate. Go ahead. <laughs> Excellent, mate. Well, we're getting, getting to some... Well, my first question really has uh, um, something to do with Leicester because uh, Harry Maguire is involved with Manchester United. But you know, Fred was the first to voice his concerns uh, around the disruption at, uh, at the Red Devils caused by their failure to appoint a long-term manager. And now we're hearing stories about Maurizio Pochettino at PSG, uh, Ajax's Eric Van, um, Dentag. Uh, they're said to be the leading candidates to replace Ragnick, as well as even Carlo. Ancelotti. Uh, so United, they've one of their most humiliating uh, defeats since the uh, the post Sir Alex Ferguson era in the derby on the weekend, four one at the Etihad. Uh, uh, the stories that Ronaldo, when he was told uh, by Ragnick that he was going to be sitting on the bench, refused and headed off to Portugal for some treatment. So, you know, is this a situation now at, at Manchester United where they, they they almost have to act and get the new man in? Otherwise, there's a chance that. Uh, the, the new coach, the permanent coach, could be taking charge of a team that won't even be in the Champions League. If you look to that performance against Man City, look, Man City have embarrassed a lot of sides, but it's different when it's your your City rivals. And um, they were in it for in the first half. They seemed to be causing Man City some problems. and um, But then they just capitulated and there just seemed to be a lack of heart, a lack of mm. effort, a lack of fight, which is really worrying for, for the United fans. So, 
the, the Ralph Regnick, he, he come in, you know, as the Gagan pressing and all the, you know, the intensity of the play. And there wasn't any of that second half for Man United. So I can imagine the hierarchy at Old Trafford and how thinking, well, we, we really need to get a move on with this now. And there, there is there is lots of reports of disquiet behind the scenes and a, a lack of harmony. I mean, Harry Maguire is not a disruptive character at, at <laughs> all. You know, he's a really mild-mannered, placid sort of fella. But, you know, obviously he wants to win and he's... And, he, and from what I can, I remember dealing with him in the past, you know, he was a really good talker and a level-headed guy. But, um, you know, he's now leading um, a group that seems to be all over the place. And if if Ronaldo is um, putting stunts like that, then, um, you know, that he's only looking out for, 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 for one person and that's himself, which, you know, seems very, very strange in the situation United are in. And that was always the danger when you go and get a big superstar like that and uh, throw him into the mix. Um, so whoever's coming in, they've got a big job, but Man United will always be a huge draw. I'm just glad they're not uh, mentioning Brendan Rodgers anymore because they were <laughs> before Christmas. But um, that's gone all quiet because Leicester's form has been up and down as well. So, mm. um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see which direction they go. I want to ask you about your club, the Blue Noses, uh, back in the yeah. championship. Uh, Paul Suen and Vong Pitch, the major shareholders of parent company, Birmingham Sports Holdings Limited. They've got a, a lot to answer for, these blokes. They've been really hands-off since they purchased the club. Um, weird administrative appointments, horrendous financial management. Um, the club's on its knees. Parts of the famous St Andrews Stadium are condemned and a squad full of loan players. They've just got very few assets. Um, somehow they're keeping their um, blue noses above the relegation zone, but... Um, it's just an absolute shame. A club, you know, a lot of Australians don't understand how big this club is or how significant it is to the Midlands. And um, you, as a Blue Nose person, you must be you must be watching in horror as to what's happening. Well, the worst thing is about it that they've robbed the fans of hope. I mean, that's the one thing that, as a football fan, you have is that hope that your team one day will will come good, despite all that. The tough times. I mean, uh, the the club anthem, keep right on to the end of the road. You know, sometimes it's a long, long road, that is. And uh, Blues fans have been through a hell of a lot. And and if you look at the club's history, they always seem to be owned somehow. They always seem to find themselves... With a shit owner. The, uh, the, the ownership. <laughs> that is bizarre. I mean, the previous one, Carson Young. He was the he same, was a Hong Kong. He? Yeah. he was a hairdresser from Hong Kong. I mean, uh, he brought the club for £80 million. How much hair do you have to cut? to earn 80 million quid. So there was obviously some question marks over that from the start. There should have been. Um, but it was just loud to meander on. And he ends up getting um, jail for money laundering. Uh, and then this group come in. And it's, as you as you said, there's no assets left at the club. They've sold everything off. Um, you know, any star plenty young players that come through, they're gone. That money disappears. There's uh, the stadium now. It's, it's crumbling. There's no money to fix it. They claim they're going to do it in one summer. It'll take a lot longer than that. Um, and I don't know where the money's coming from for, for it either. So the fans are just getting so desperate that all, there were some, there was some uh, protests a few months ago. They turned up for one game with all white face masks on, basically to say that the ownership's faceless. Well, they are, and then they? they? Did the, yeah, and then they did the usual tennis ball throwing it as well to disrupt the game and whistling. They all took a whistle. And whistled along to try and drown out the referee, but all their whistles were a different pitch to the referees, <laughs> and they didn't really affect the game. But they've they, even that sort of stuff has stopped. All the hope and the fight sort of gone mm. out of them. They're almost resigned to the fact that they could end up like Derby now. And um, 
that that'd be a terrible shame for a club. I mean, it's, it's a bit like Leicester used to be. The rich club in terms of the history of fan base and characters and players like Trevor Francis and all of that, but no history of winning things. Um, but, you know, it's a shame, really, that when you see mighty clubs like this and Derby, they're just struggling so much and, and, and their very future is jeopardised as well. We've seen it, obviously, the ripples of the Ukraine uh, war, uh, the crisis that's um, evolving there is uh, well and truly... Uh, highlighting uh, some of these uh, these owners uh, and uh, just you know what they're about. Um, one of uh, the Premier League uh, club owners who made a hard decision recently, not a surprising one, but a hard one. And you saw them play last Saturday, Leeds United, and they were very good in that match against Leicester. And I thought um, Leicester were a bit lucky to get away with it, Rob. I don't know what your analysis of that mm-hmm. was. Very much so. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, tell us about Jesse March. He 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 insists. He's no Ted Lasso, even though he sounds like him. Um, but the American, who's been appointed to save Leeds United, uh, he's got a big job ahead of him um, to keep them in uh, the, the top flight. Um, before they played you, they had 12 games. He's got 12 games. Now he's got 11. Um, and uh, he needs to keep out of the relegation zone. Can he do it? They showed a lot of spirit, a lot of effort. And if you saw the scenes at the end of the, uh, the game where they're all uh, in a huddle on the pitch, you know, he's, he's trying to foster that camaraderie, that team bonding. Um, as I said to you earlier, when Bamford's back, they're, they're lacking somebody at the top end of the pitch. I mean, Dan James is a decent player, but he's a wide player. He's not a number nine. They played a system which is a 4-2-2-2, very narrow. But they were causing Leicester lots of problems because the two inverted wide guys were practically making a front four at times. And it, was, um, you know, it wasn't the man-for-man Bielsa system that we were used to that is so entertaining, but it was still end-to-end. It was like a basketball game, you know, at times. Leicester would go on the attack, then Leeds would go on the attack, but they just didn't have the cutting edge in the six-yard box to put their chances away. Leicester had very, very few chances, and Harvey Barnes did have the quality to put it away. And that's the difference, and that's often going to be the difference in a, in, a, in a football match like that. I mean, it could have been one-sided in terms of the play and the chances and shots on goal, uh, but Casper Schmeichel made a couple of good saves, and Harvey Barnes Barnes gets the finish. It's the quality in both boxes that makes the difference. And what about Jesse? Got to find that quality. What about Jesse Marsh, the the, the new coach? I yeah, mean, what can you tell us about I, him? Yeah, spoke to him after the game. He um, he seems very enthusiastic. Uh, if you look at his his record, Salzburg and Leipzig, and he's had a couple of years of European football. He was schooled by Ralph Ragnick, so we know we're going to get the Gagan pressing, and that similar sort of style. Leicester did a lot of research on him beforehand in terms of watching video footage. Um, so they had an, a good idea of how he played. They even had a good idea that he was going to wear those skin-tight grey jeans as well. <laughs> it seems to be his trademark in the six-yard box. Uh, sorry, in the technical area. I mean, the last time I saw a, a manager in jeans in the in the technical area it was Paolo Sosa at Leicester. <laughs> but um, no, I think they're. Um, yeah, I, th- I think they've got a chance. He hasn't got a lot of experience in the in, in Premier League and as a coach in his own right. I mean, he did a lot of work in in the MLS beforehand with New York. So that, that was where the Red Bulls sort of association comes from. But if he can get Bamford fit, if he can get them playing in the same intensity against Leicester, they've got a chance. They've just got to take their chances. They've got to, when they're dominating games, when they're on top, they've got to make it count. Uh, and that's often sides that are struggling down the bottom. That's something they struggle to do. And just a, a few words on, on Bielsa. He engenders a lot of emotion and uh and uh, fanatical support for his methods and uh, approach. Um, but he had a horror run. Um, just some thoughts on his time at Leeds and um, the impact he had in the Premier League. After Leicester, they were the team that I looked to watch 
when when they were on the telly, I thought, I'll watch this because it's Leeds. You never know what you're going to get. Unpredictable. I mean, that must be infuriating as a as a you know, for the Leeds hierarchy, but for a fan, a football fan who loves to see something different, Bielsa was fantastic for the Premier League. Uh, he's some of his these systems of play, you know, the man to man where the right back would follow the left wing, even if he went over them to the right flank. It was all, and then that they would they would have four or five. Up, up front, it was so entertaining to watch, um, and it, I think it was fantastic that the Leeds fans, who came in big numbers to King Power Stadium, were singing Bielsa's name and uh, Marsh's name as well. So there's a lot of love still for Bielsa in the, in Leeds, and I think there's a lot of appreciation for what he did getting them in the Premier League and and, and making the fans proud of their team again because last season they were fantastic. This season it's been a struggle, uh, and again I go back to what I said about Leicester. You got if you're going to be a side like in that area, in that range, you've got to have your best players available. And without Patrick Bamford, their, their goal scorer, they they um, they really struggled, and they've had lots of other injuries as well. It's been a real season of attrition. But Bielsa, yeah, a legend. I don't know whether we we'll ever see him again. I don't think we'll ever see him in the Premier League again. And that's a real shame, but whilst it lasted, it was uh, it was great to watch. Yeah, it was fun, and, and and what a character he is! Is listening to various radio from the UK and podcasts. I heard some fantastic stories about him over the course of the last week. One in particular where he was famous for getting lost on the way from his home to the ground, <laughs> riding his push bike. Yeah. So well, I think he's uh, one of his, uh, his his assistant coaches painted some arrows <laughs> along the footpath. <laughs> So that's a oh, great he, he was an eccentric, an eccentric character, and yeah. very down, to, down to earth in terms of mm. that there was no airs or graces. He wasn't a millionaire mm. football manager. That, yeah. He used to live in a flat above a shop, so mm. you know he was. Uh, it was a real character. We're going to ask you about uh, a local sportsman who's no longer with us, sadly, who had no airs and graces. Before I do, though, I just want to quickly ask you about Chelsea. Uh, uh, the Times are reporting today that Robert Woody Johnson, the owner of the New York Jets, is preparing to make a bid, 74 years old, former US ambassador. What an irony it would be in the post-Abramovich era for a former American politician to take over from the yeah. Russian oligarch. That would be a bit of pill to swallow. I think the Chelsea fans just want this sorted mm. as fast as possible, really. And, and, and so there isn't any uh, destabilising influences around the club. They want, I mean, Roman Abramovich has done wonderful for them. Uh, you could, I've read varying reports about his motives for getting involved in Chelsea in the first place. But I think in the end, there's no question he, he, he loved the club. Um, I mean, the fact that he's not called in any of his loans, mm. which is extraordinary. Mm. I mean, that into the billions. He must and, have a lot uh, of money, Rob. You think yeah, well, yeah, Derek was exactly. saying that he thinks uh, Stan Kroenke might be calling in some of his loans at Arsenal. Uh, you reckon that might be oh, happening? Yeah, no question. <laughs> I don't think many. I don't think many owners are willing to write off 1.5 billion no. in loans like that. I well, mean, he, he yeah, bought I the mean, club for 140 million pounds in 2003. And they say, reports, Rob, you might be closer to this than I am, but um, you know, from what I'm reading, they're saying that the going rate, the going price is going to be around £4 billion. It is just remarkable what the value of clubs have turned from, you know, in the, in the 19 or 20 years that he's been... Largely responsible know. himself for, for that uh, price inflation. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, it's just a, a phenomenal growth in equity for Premier League football clubs, yeah. It is, I mean, and, and we say this a lot. It's not an English league anymore. It's a global, no, it's a global league. league. Yeah, it just, mm-hmm. yeah, it just happens to be played in England, you know, yeah. with English fans, and, and that's part of the picture of it, you know, the, the the fans and stuff. But you know, in terms of who the makeup of the clubs, where the finances are coming from, 
uh, the ownerships, the players. It is a global league. And I think that's why it's drawing such an appeal. And, and that's why the money is pouring in. I mean, the, the, the TV rights deals are growing and growing and growing. You, whenever you think there's a glass ceiling, they won't be able to get any more money out of this. They you know, have reached the top uh, of, the, of, the, of the tree, the money tree. They haven't. Another mm. branch grows and it's somebody else's cash that's coming in, pouring in. Uh, there's talk now they're, they're um, ripping up the deal with the Russian TV companies because mm. they can see every game mm. live mm. in Russia. Well, that's going to cost them 10 million, but that's a drop in the ocean in terms of revenue, the revenue that's coming into the Premier League. Mm. And that's why clubs are going to be priced that much, because a club is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And if they're willing to pay that much because they see an investment in it, they'll pay it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Rob, before we let you go, we mentioned this off the top uh, when we uh, we got uh, going today, um, that we don't often talk about other sports on the show, but uh, Australia lost... Uh, one of its favourite all-time sportsmen this past week. And, uh, uh, of course, it's Shane Warne. Um, he had a, an incredible impact on uh, on the sporting scene in, in England in particular. He was almost like a second son and, uh, and embraced as much in England as, as he was here. Um, I guess uh, the question is begged, to a to a man who who works in the sporting industry in the UK, who, who would be the equivalent person? I mean, the only the person I'm sort of thinking of uh, uh, who had a similar sort of career was Ian Botham. But but is is there a footballer that you can think of that would have a similar stature, international reaction, uh, um, if he was to go as as early as Warnie did? Oh, David Beckham probably. Yeah, I mean, he's that yeah. he was that sort of character, wasn't he, with his bleach blonde hair. Mm. His, his lifestyle as well, you know, he lived it large on and off the... There you the go, pitch, he's just, you know. Rob summed it up in mm. one word, it is, it, he is the David Beckham of a, Australian cricket, yeah. Yeah, he's such a talent as well, a talent that you can't really coach, it was instinctive. I mean, he, he, you were right when when you said, he, he, you know, obviously he's a, a very famous son of Australia, but he was loved in England as well, um, and we liked him on the telly when he used to come and do his commentary, because he, he just spoke sense, he just spoke common sense, but in a, with a charming uh, delivery to anything he said, he he, he was a real charmer, and uh, um, you know, and, and I think I think there's a laddish nature about sports fans as well. They like to see their mm. fans letting their their players letting their hair down. I mean, Freddie Flintoff used to do yeah. it as well to such to some extent. So he's going to be much missed, and um, you know, it was terrible news. That, I mean, an age like that as well, fifty-two. Mm. I mean, I'm forty-nine. That's made me start thinking about my diet and perhaps yeah. cutting back on a few, on a few beers. But, it's interesting uh, you say that, Rob, because that is exactly what Edge and I were, were discussing off the top, and um, and friends of ours, and uh, you're seeing it in the media reported that if anything good can come of this, that uh, hopefully some of us who are of a similar vintage will uh, will uh, uh, pull our finger out and visit the local doctor and get some tests done and uh, and think about our lifestyle a little bit more. Well, straight after I've spoken to you, I'm off to the gym. So that, well that's, done, mate. The imp- that's the impact that impact that Warren had not only on future generations of cricketers but also to middle-aged bowling fat men from England who now go to the gym so. and, and exactly the same but uh, Australian insert of the word Australian for, for this end Rob hey Rob <laughs> listen mate we've gone way over time because you're such a good bloke and there was such so much to talk about mate uh, uh, thanks again for, for everything you do for us and uh, and for uh, jumping on and, and having a yarn mate uh, we're really really grateful Anytime, guys. Thank you. Not at all, Rob Tanner from The Athletic. All right, Edge, we'll, uh, I don't know whether we get Derek and, uh, and Willem back next week. We've sort of covered it all. Damo's pressed the buttons. Uh, what do you think? What's what's the vote? Yeah, we'll let him come back. Okay. All right, we will. All Just. right, mate. We'll have a good week. You too, Rob. We'll see you next week.
please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.